Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 12. <clears throat> John chapter 12. <clears throat> the triumphal entry is one of the few things recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. Even the birth of Jesus is not recorded in all the gospels. The Sermon on the Mount is not recorded in all the gospels. But the triumphal entry is. Apparently, the Lord thinks this is worthy of our repeated uh, uh, consideration. And so this Palm Sunday, let's look at it again. This event which began the week of Jesus' passion. We read Matthew's account earlier. Let's hear the Apostle John's perspective. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 12 down through verse 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This morning I would suggest that this account has two important truths to teach us. And the first is this. Jesus the King deserves your praise. Jesus the King deserves your praise. You know, we live in a polished media age. Everything is displayed before our eyes in living color and stereo sound and, and, and sometimes high-definition video uh, with perfectly executed choreography and enough preliminary hype to guarantee its success. Everything seems staged and practiced and calculated to have the desired effect. For example, have you ever noticed how often important events happen just exactly in time for the satellite feed to the evening news? Wow, that's amazing. What a coincidence it is. Because we're so accustomed to even the spectacular being staged, a stage production, we can read an event like this and never even have a flutter of excitement. Oh yeah, whatever. Still, what we have recorded in this text is more than just media hype. More than a demonstration staged for the cameras. Here is a spontaneous outpouring of praise and adulation. Here is a fervent crowd of people who were not organized or paid to be there. Here is a display of love and celebration which flowed only from the worthiness of the person at its center, Jesus Christ. Here were people who understood that King Jesus was worthy, deserved their praise. Let me just review exactly what took place. As I mentioned earlier, all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include this account. And they all have little different details. So let's just put them together in one kind of pot composite picture. And then let me tell you what happened here. It's Sunday, the beginning of the week that would end in Jesus being crucified. 
All of Jerusalem is astir, for this is the Passover season. The city is alive with religious expectation. There are people everywhere in and around the holy city. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian of the day, uh, uh, reports that two and a half million people crowded into this tiny little city of Jerusalem. Jews from all over the world. And so Jesus leaves the little town of Bethany to head for the city himself. Now Bethany, where Jesus has been staying and where he would return at night during this week to come, was located on the other side, the far side of a little hill called the Mount of Olives. But it was really only about two miles from Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives itself is not really a mountain, it's a rounded ridge east of the city of Jerusalem. It rises to an elevation of about 2,600 feet, but that's only 250 feet higher than the Temple Hill across the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives. As Jesus begins to walk toward Jerusalem, surrounded by his friends, he sends two of his disciples to the little village of Bethphage, which, with detailed instructions about where to borrow a donkey and her colt. They're successful, they return with the animals, and when it becomes clear that Jesus intends to ride the, the colt, not the mother, the disciples had throw their garments on the animal, and Jesus uh, mounts the animal and begins to ride. The crowd which is accompanying Jesus immediately follows the lead of the disciples, and, and uh, take, some take off their outer garments and, and, and spread them on the, on the path uh, to pave the way before him, and others cut branches from the trees and, and lay them down to pave a way for this uh, Lord, this King Jesus, riding toward Jerusalem. Meanwhile, down in Jerusalem, the caravan of pilgrims had arrived for, uh, for Passover, many, many people there, and they heard that over in Bethany, Jesus had raised a man, Lazarus, from the dead, and that now he's on his way to the city. And so they began to pour out of the eastern gate of Jerusalem up toward the Mount of Olives, where Jesus was coming. As they went, they cut palm branches, and they hurried out to meet the Messiah. Actually, verse 17 tells us that the, the crowd coming with Jesus from Bethany was going ahead of Jesus and was spreading the word about him to the crowd that was coming out of the city. Well, not surprisingly, as the two crowds met, uh, there, there was a great uh, a, a bit of enthusiasm mounting there. And so descending the western slopes of the Mount of Olives and drawing near to Jerusalem, everyone begins to shout, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They begin to sing Psalm 118, which is the last of the songs of Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118, which were traditionally used in the Passover. They begin to sing the last of, uh, some of the phrases of the last song. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. What an impressive, spontaneous outpouring of adulation in fact, Matthew says, as Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. Those who had remained behind were asking, who is this? And they were told that it's Jesus the prophet. The Pharisees, beside themselves with envy, took offense at all of this cheering, and they appealed to Jesus, teacher, uh, rebuke your disciples, make it stop. To which Jesus responded, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so verse 9 tells us that finally the Pharisees say to one another, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world 
has gone after him. Have you ever been part of that kind of a group? Some fervent religious demonstration? Thousands of people cheering, shouting praise? We don't do that, do we? In fact, like the Pharisees, we may even find such exuberant praise a bit inappropriate for worship. But you see, this crowd understood that they understood what their leaders apparently missed, that Jesus is the king and he's worthy of all praise. So what got them so excited? What did they know that we don't know? Absolutely nothing. In fact, they knew much less than we know. They had begun to think that Jesus might be the Messiah. They had no idea the way he came to save sinners and give eternal life. They had seen his miraculous power, heard of him raising Lazarus from the dead. They never dreamed that he would be crucified and would rise from the dead himself. They had tasted the joy of being in his presence. They never dreamed of a day when the Holy Spirit would fill and be present in, in, in the midst of his church everywhere. And yet, knowing what they knew, acting on what they had heard up to that time, they raised their voices and waved the palm fronds and cast down their coats as a, as a carpet and joined together in praise of Jesus, the great King. This morning, I want to remind you that Jesus, the King, still deserves your praise. If we fail to praise him like that crowd, it's not that we have no reason for praise. We have more reason than they did. It's only that we have become blind and callous to the truth of his greatness. This morning I call you to embrace the attitude of that hymn writer Robert Robinson, who in 1774 wrote these lines of praise. Brightness of the Father's glory shall thy praise unuttered lie Fly, my tongue, such guilty silence. Sing the Lord who came to die from the highest throne in glory to the cross of deepest woe, all to ransom guilty captives. Flow, my praise, forever flow. Hallelujah, hallelujah. <clears throat> Is that what you do? Uninhibited praise of the Savior? And if you wanted to do that, what would it look like in our day, in our situation? Well, I think it would mean that uh, when you read God's Word, you don't just drone on through to get the assigned reading of the day. But you adopt its words of praise. When you come to a doxological, a little praise statement or, 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 or one of the Psalms, you make those words your own words and you, and you address them to the Lord and, and praise the Lord with what you read in his word and in response to what you read in his word. It means as you tuck your children in bed at night, you don't just read them fairy tales and sing Sesame Street songs. You teach them and sing with them children's songs of praise. It means that rather than just listening to your favorite radio station as you drive to work or wherever you go, you don't just endlessly drone on with the news of the day or the music of the day. Buy some CDs with songs of praise and play them enough until you know all the words and you sing along with them songs of praise to the Lord. It means that rather than just going and renting another movie to watch, go buy a concert video of some Christian music group 
and, and, and play it and, 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 and rejoice in it rather than just wasting a couple hours in entertainment. Most obviously, it means that we don't neglect meeting together. This is why we gather every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening and this coming Thursday night and Friday night. We're not trying to, meet, to fill a square here. We're not trying to impress people with our spirituality. We meet to sing and to worship because Jesus the King desires and deserves adoration and praise. Well, that's the first thing we need to learn, but there's another one, which is this. Jesus, the great king, comes in peace. Jesus, the great king, comes in peace. I have a friend who was an Air Force protocol officer. Now, there's a job you don't want. You see, whenever, whenever a high-ranking uh, official visits, there's a certain protocol to be followed to make assure that he has shown the honor that is due to his position. So on a military base, when a general is coming, or a congressman is even worse, or worst case scenario, the president is coming, someone must make sure, someone must give all their efforts to making sure that in every detail, that distinguished person is shown the, the, the respect his position demands. Oh, but it's even more complicated than that. For the office of the distinguished visitor is not the only consideration. His intention in his visit also is a consideration. In other words, if a general arrives to conduct an inspection, there's one kind of protocol. If the general arrives because he's taken a little vacation and wants to play some golf, there's quite a different protocol. Now, in the triumphal entry... There's no question among the crowd the honor that Jesus is due. He clearly is acclaimed to be God's anointed one, God's Messiah, God's King. They acknowledge him as the son of David, the rightful heir of the throne. And they put, lay their palm branches before him, just like they did in 2 Kings 9, when, when their forefathers acknowledged the coronation of Jehu, the king of, of, of Israel. But as the apostles look back on this incident years later... What seems to impress them the most is not just Jesus' high position, which the crowd recognized, but the intentions of Jesus in his visit, which were signaled by the lowly way he presented himself. Jesus entered Jerusalem not just receiving the rightful praise of people, but revealing to them the true nature of his kingdom, what he came to do, which was totally different than what they expected. Dr. Tasker comments, it was a strange coming, but in its very strangeness, it was the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Jesus deliberately arranged that he should ride into the city, not mounted on an earthly, not mounted as an earthly warrior king on horse and chariot, but as the prophet had foretold, meek, and lowly sitting on a donkey. Leon Moore says the same thing. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to symbolize a conception of Messiahship very different from that of the crowds. He came as the Prince of Peace, for the donkey was not normally associated with a warlike person. It was the animal of a man of peace. What a contrast to the Roman triumphal entry, when a, 
when a, triumph, uh, a triumphing, a victorious uh, uh, general rode into town or something. And listen to this description from my Bible dictionary. In a Roman triumph, the victorious general entered the city on a chariot drawn by four horses. He was crowned with laurel, having a scepter in one hand and a branch of laurel in the other. He was preceded by the senate and the magistrates and musicians, the spoils of his victory, and the captives in fetters, and followed by his army on foot in marching order. It's quite a parade. It's quite a to-do to honor a general. But like the general who comes not lowering the boom in an inspection, but to make friends and to build relationships and to enjoy people. Jesus does not come in judgment. The great king comes to bring peace. The Apostle John makes this point by quoting from Zechariah 9, which we read already. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule would extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the great passage from the Old Testament, which explicitly speaks of the Messiah King coming not like a triumphant warrior, but coming in peace. In fact, John even prefaces this quote of Zechariah 9 with Jesus' words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The apostle is telling us the significance of these events. Jesus, the great king, the Messiah, has not come to judge. He's come to bring peace. Now, that was not understood immediately. Uh, It came to be understood by the apostles only after they saw the events that transpired. Jesus' death and, and, and his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, the coming of the Spirit. Then they understood what this all meant. In fact, John admits that in verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. But after Jesus' resurrection, you see, his intentions were very clearly understood. And what glorious intentions they were. Jesus had not come to bring instant justice. If he had, no one would be left standing. It would be judgment day. But in his mercy, Jesus came to bear judgment, to take our sins upon himself in the cross in order to bring us peace. Dr. James Boyce makes the point uh, very clearly with a great illustration. He explains how Jesus entered Jerusalem at the same time that thousands of lambs for the Passover were being herded into the city. And along with them, here comes Jesus, the final perfect Passover lamb who will take away our sin and deliver us from judgment. So the New Testament repeatedly makes this point that because Jesus came to die, we have peace with God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. He's the reconciler. He's the prince that comes in peace. That's the good news this Palm Sunday. It's the thing which impressed the apostles so long ago as they look back on this incident. Not just that Jesus was the Messiah, the King, but that he came in peace. Sometimes we stumble over this truth. We 
We want the Lord to be the Messiah and come and bring judgment on the wicked and set things straight. Why doesn't God come and fix this? And he will certainly do that. But that's judgment day. Today is a day of grace. Today he's come in peace. Today he has come to show mercy, giving himself as an atonement for our sins in order to bring us to God. Today Jesus is not destroying his enemies. He's turning them into his sons and daughters. Today he's pleased to make us his children and to love us. So if you're ignoring his grace, thinking that you're getting away with it because the heavens don't fall on you, I call you to turn around. Don't you understand the goodness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? You're not outwitting God. You're just rejecting the very mercy that would bring peace. For Jesus, the great king, has come in peace. The world is quite accustomed to leaders, to peering with all the trappings of power, to make themselves great, keeping aloof from people, perhaps even despising the poor commoners that they rule over. It's how powerful people act. But this morning I I point you to an awesome king named Jesus. In the triumphal entry, he makes his appearance, his uh, entrance, his grand entrance into the holy city, the city of God's promised Messiah, his city. But he's not aloof and detached and insulated by the trappings of power. He doesn't come riding in a bulletproof limousine and waving to the dumb but adoring crowds. Oh no. He comes awkwardly seated on the foal of a donkey, legs nearly dragging on the ground, bumped and touched by the crowd, surrounded by throngs of people whom he loves enough to die for. As we honor him today, his praise comes not primarily from the glory he had with the Father before time began. His greatest acclaim comes because of the grace by which this king came in peace to save those on whom he lavishes his love. This morning I call you to Jesus. This great king is worthy of your praise. For he came in grace and peace to save us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, if you just came with legions of angels in blazing light and glory and caused the whole world to fall down face in the dirt in acclamation, just destroying your enemies before us and, 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 and removing every bit of sin and Injustice from the world, Lord, you would be worthy of, of uh, everyone's praise. Even if we were destroyed in the coming, you'd be worthy of our praise. But thank you, Lord, that you first come, lowly and meek, walking in our shoes, riding on a donkey, suffering, not bringing suffering, that we might have peace with God. Oh, Lord, may we not uh, miss this. May we not go on living as if it's no big deal. May we not spurn your grace or just ignore your grace because it seems uh, easy and 
doesn't demand our attention like a display of power would. Oh, Lord, cause us to seek to honor you and to worship you and to bring praise to you in every bit of our lives. And cause us, Lord, to know what it is to live in peace with you by the gospel that you've uh, worked in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.